Welcome to the Health Ignited Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Nick and Sonia Jensen. We are partners, parents, business partners, doctors, yoga teachers, and retreat leaders. We promise to bring you real conversations to awaken and ignite your potential to live your best life possible. Join us each week as we dive into topics varying from brain health, biohacking, hormones, and longevity, to relationships, parenting, meditation, and more. Together, creating community and building stronger foundations for the generations to come. Hey everyone, Dr. Sonia here with Dr. Nick. Welcome to another episode of Health Ignited. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about an interesting and very intriguing topic and one that's at the forefront, I think, of a lot of our patients. And unfortunately for us as naturopathic physicians, we can't necessarily prescribe this, but we can point you in the right direction and get you education and get you the research and the resources that you need to make um, a decision for yourself. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we're gonna be talking a lot about CBD, THC, medical marijuana, you know, you can call it whatever you'd like. Uh, Some of us have had recreational experiences with it. Others are using it for medical purposes. So we're going to dive into everything you need to know about this. And, you know, we're really excited about the guests that we've gone on today because Mm -hmm. she is an expert. That's right. So we have Dr. Sherry Yafai, MD. She is a cannabis and emergency medicine physician at Providence St. John's Medical Center since 2009. Dr. Yafai started her medical career at UCSD Medical School, graduating in 2005, and UCSD Emergency Medicine Residency in 2009. In 2017, after recreational marijuana laws had passed in California, Dr. Yafai opened her private cannabis clinic, the Relief Institute, where she sees patients referred by physicians for cannabis education and treatment. Treatment. Roughly 75% of her patients are over the age of 50 and prefer to use non-smokable cannabis products. So thank you, Dr. Sherry, for joining us today and um, teaching us and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. Thank you both so much for having me today. This is a very exciting time. Mm-hmm. We're borders. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's, you know, you never know how you're going to meet someone too. And, you know, we didn't know who you were before we had a mutual uh, patient introduce us. And it's just, you know, it's a real statement and a blessing for technology that we're able to, you know, cross borders and cross, cross cultures and, and, and cross, you, you know, our different uh, practices and to learn from one another in such a manner. So yeah, again, thank you for taking time from your busy schedule to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I think cannabis is really going to be leading the way in terms of this kind of revolution in how we share information in the medical world and how research is done in the medical world. So, you know, we do a lot of uh, research based, very focused on one chemical and one chemical alone. And we go do, you know, 200 patient randomized clinical trials. Whereas in cannabis, we're seeing the population bringing forward the data and pushing forward the medical indications. I mean, we've, we've never quite had a medicine that has done that. Well, in, in a couple of hundred decades, a century or so. So we, we haven't been in this place. And more than that, we haven't been in a place where we can communicate like this, right? This, this new digital revolution. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, you know, I couldn't help but be pulled. You, you did a documentary called Cannabis and Your Doctor. And, and I encourage anyone who's interested, curious to look into it because it's, there's so much amazing information there. But one of the things at the beginning of the documentary that you did was, was so good. And it was, you were talking about a dialogue between other doctors and their patients and a recommendation going out, oh, you should smoke some pot. And I think, I think I'm quoting that properly. Um, you know, you've got pain, why don't you smoke some pot? And, and the patient's kind of like, 
okay, where, where do I go now? <laughs> you know, yeah. well, look it up on Google and you may find some answers. Let's walk us through that, that journey a little bit, because that must've been just eye-opening for you to think that, you know, here's a recommendation coming from a doctor. You would expect it to be a little bit more substance to it and more resource. So, uh, and maybe that might, uh, lead you into a conversation of, of how you got started on this field. Right. So that's exactly right. Uh, Dr. Nick, I, came at this about five years ago with um, a close family member who got diagnosed with cancer. And after going to the oncologist, you know, their response, this was just when cannabis was under the guise of medically legal in California and still not legal in Canada. And the suggestion was, oh, if you're feeling a little bit nauseated, I hear you can smoke some pot. And when we came to ask more questions, they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, I don't know, Google it. And if you're anywhere near the remotely in medicine, you know, Google can be your arch enemy sometimes, especially when being in the emergency for all this time, when patients come and say, oh, I Googled it. I know I have, you know, appendiceal cancer. And you're, you, you kind of roll your eyes sometimes and say, well, gosh, like we're, we're going to take it one step at a time. You might just have heartburn. Like it can be that simple. Um, so to find a position where you're in, where the physician is now telling you to just Google it and figure it out on your own, seemed very contrary to everything we do in medicine and everything we try and kind of encourage patients not to do. And so we were now stuck in a place where, you know, you want to smoke something that you've previously only thought about as real, you know, like hard drugs. And it's like, I'm about to go out and do cocaine and heroin and you know, that perception was really at the forefront of my mind, at least. And I know at the forefront of a lot of other people's minds. And so to have our doctor and our oncologist suggesting that seemed really odd. So inevitably, we did Google it. And we went online and figured out where to go to. And we looked like a fly by the night kind of doctor, who maybe had lost their license at some point in their career and was wearing a Hawaiian t-shirt with, you know, shorts on and didn't look at us and didn't really pay attention to what we were talking about and just asked us to circle a part of the body that was bothering us. And that was the end of it. It was maybe a total of eight minutes. And wow. it didn't seem like, you know, as a physician, it didn't seem like the right way to be assessing what was going on. And that then, sounds like a like an early high school experience for me when we <laughs> right. that's what you expect to see, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And then we left that facility and or you know, it should be called the clinic, but we left that office space and went to a dispensary, which at the time looked like a pager store that had been, you know, all the pagers were taken out of the shelves. <laughs> and my pot was put in, like there was a bunch of different type of weed that was put in the on the shelving. And we just kind of like asked, you know, oh, you know, we've got a friend here who has breast cancer. What should we do? And they said, well, you know, this one gets me really high. And that was the response from the bud tender behind the counter. And it was just kind of, no, that, that's not what I'm looking for here. I, I need something else. And getting that not so, what's the word I'm looking for here? Not really clinical or a real medical pathway and not really feeling like your your needs are being met or heard um, by somebody who just smokes to kind of get stoned all day. 
And again, this is not meant to be across the, the board. And this was five years ago. We've really come a long way in cannabis in general. So we don't get that routinely anymore. But that was what prompted all of this and, and saying, hey, we need to do better for our patients. And we really, we've got a lot more options nowadays. And why don't we take those options more seriously? And part of what we see in the, in the whole kind of field of cannabis is that 80% of this is really recreational use. And there's probably about 10 to 20% of it that's truly medical use. And what we're seeing is before it used to all kind of hide under medical, and now it's kind of all hiding under recreational. So either way you swing this, we're not getting a real sense of what's going on. And it, we really need to do better for everyone. And, and we need to start outlining better what, what everybody's needs are. We don't need to hide under one umbrella or the other anymore. So that and I feel like um, I was just gonna say I feel like when you're in that position too, like your friend that was you know um, had this diagnosis of breast cancer, or if there's somebody else that's dealing dealing with chronic pain or severe anxiety where their quality of life has diminished so much, they're in such a vulnerable position. So if they're not feeling safe and in understanding um, how to use something that maybe they did have that perception of like, if I go down this route, will I become addicted? And well, like all these other misconceptions that we may have because of the lack of understanding of how cannabis works and the, how it works with our biology and just uh, everything about it. So I think it'd be great today for you to um, create some clarity around that too, between CBD and THC and just when you would use what, um, I think so people start to understand because I do feel like there's a lot of confusion around that. And um, I actually have a patient who moved from um, Mexico and was dealing with um, multiple seizures. Like her son after the age of like four months was just having seizures all the time and was put on some cannabis and he was seizure free for over a year, if not two years. And then, but when they moved to Canada that shifted because of the dosing and just how the product was made and then the seizures came back. So I think just creating some clarity around that for us would be amazing of like, what is CBD? What is THC? And like, what do we want to look for? Right. So you bring up an excellent point. So when we go from kind of recreational use, I mean, even in recreational use to true medical use, we need to start talking about things with clarity, right? What are the dosages? What are the chemicals that we're using? What are the, you know, how frequently do we want to be dosing this? So all of these really important strategies. So if you think about the term cannabis, so people are like, you know, where did this new lingo come from? It's not new, it's old lingo. And it's the very scientific term for the umbrella kind of concept of marijuana. Marijuana is actually a very historically racist word um, that comes from, from actually Mexico. So it's the term Mexicans use to describe um, marijuana or cannabis. And it was in the 1920s, the reason it got really prolific was because it was a term that we started using in order to put, um, put Hispanics and Blacks very specifically in jail or to mm. deport them. And it became, you know, if they're using marijuana, it's the devil's seed, it's the devil's plant, we need to get them away. And we need to put them in prison because they're going to be creating, they're going to rape women, they're going to be um, troublemakers, they're going to kill people. And that was where all of this hype came from. Wow. Whereas before, and actually in the early 1900s and 1800s, we were using cannabis tincture 
in our oils for cough suppressants, for nighttime sleep tinctures. So Eli Lilly, a very famous pharmaceutical company was using this very much. And so we had to create this new kind of hype around something old. And the way to do that is to rename it. So now we're going back to kind of our roots. And what we're seeing is, is the term cannabis being used because we're going back to the scientific essence of this. And we're trying to avoid any, you know, slang terminology. You know, when you talk about alcohol, we talk about alcohol. I don't talk about drinking a fifth of hooch, right? That's not what I talk about. And then neither do we use the term hooch in our medical scientific papers. But what we still see used is the term marijuana in our scientific papers. So even core of it, we're still not used to separating out what's science from what's um, lay terminology just yet. Now, that being said, if you think about cannabis as the umbrella term, that's kind of the big word that describes the plant. Then you start getting into the details of the actual chemicals. So THC is probably the most well-known chemical in the plant. And it's because we have been using it for centuries. THC is the part of the plant that is euphoric or makes you feel good. We're, we're no longer using the term psychoactive because that means that it's active in your brain. But we know that CBD is active in your brain as well, right? That's how it controls seizures. So CBD is psychoactive, but it's not euphoric. So it doesn't make you happy or feel good. So that's the two major chemicals that we're talking about. So THC and CBD. CBD is the non-euphoric part of the plants that was previously most well known for being in the hemp subcategory or subtype of cannabis. And hemp classically was really being, you know, uh, grown for its uh, bark, for its strength. You know, we're using it to make paper and book bags and things of that nature. And about, oh, I think 10, 20 years ago, we found that the CBD chemical in it could be a benefit for seizures very specifically. About 10 years ago, Charlotte Figgy, a young girl in Colorado, really um, made it famous, so to speak. And the, one of the ways she made it famous was being on the 60 minute episode with Sanjay Gupta. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember watching that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, that was one of the major scientific kind of reviews that changed my perception on this plant because uh, Sanjay Gupta did, uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta did an amazing job of taking a look and really seeing what this is helping and how this could be helping. And he really um, uh, made Charlotte Figge a new model. Unfortunately, she passed during COVID um, due to COVID, which was mm -hmm. a real, really upsetting time for a lot of us. Okay, so getting back to THC, CBD. So those two are referred to as the major cannabinoids in the plants and the ones that we are seeing produced at the largest amounts. They're the ones that are getting a lot of research and studies. But what we're starting to see pop out of the woodworks is actually the minor cannabinoids or what I like to refer to as the alphabet soup of cannabis. And it's the CBDA, THCA, CBG, CBN, um, CBV. So you've got a lot of different other letters being thrown out there and it can get really confusing for people. And so those are the ones though that we're starting to see some benefit in terms of anxiety and anti-anxiety medications, um, inflammatory bowel disease and nighttime sleep and insomnia. Uh, and we're going to start seeing more and more data and literature pop up about these things, especially because none of them are euphoric 
None of them make you high. And because they can um, access them through the hemp plant, one of the things that we can see is, is that it makes it easier to do scientific studies and research. So that's gonna be interesting as the next five to 10 years kind of come forward. Um, in, in terms of names and words, sometimes people ask me about all the different names and words that get thrown about here. And so, so far we've talked about cannabis, hemp, marijuana, so weed, pot, I think Mary Jane, I mean, you could come up with probably like 50 different names off the top of your head. All of those really are referring to THC based products. And mostly you're talking about things that are being smoked. Then you get into the other words like dab, weed, and dab, shatter, dab, wax, and shatter, dab, wax, and shatter. So, right, I, I see Dr. Sonia, you guys can't see this. But Dr. Sonia is making a face like, oh, that's interesting. There's even more to this. I know, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it gets even more complex. And uh, dab, wax, and shatter are basically, you know, as children of the 70s and 80s, um, we used to think of hash or hash oil. And what that refers to in all of those terms are much more higher concentration versions of THC, really specifically. Um, they have a place in medicine, but for most people, I would say stay away from dab, wax, and shatter. For, the, for all newcomers and novice users, for sure you should stay away from it. And for people who generally don't have much expertise in this, I almost always say it's for expert professional use only. Um, and then I'm gonna get into one last kind of caveat with all of this is vaping versus smoking. Mm. And this, this is a lot of like people throw these words around now and it's, it's really, it gets a little bit complicated. So smoking is anytime you burn or you light a fire, right? And you're smoking either a cigarette or you're smoking a joint which is like a rolled up part of the plant, you know, you roll up the plant itself in paper. And when you do that in general, in medicine, we think of smoking as not the preferred route of giving people medicine. It works in general very quickly, which is why people like it. But if you're gonna burn plant or burn paper material, that burned product can also be considered carcinogenic or can be cancer inducing. We haven't seen any studies that show that cannabis in and of itself, either smoked as a joint or otherwise, causes lung cancer or any other types of cancer. But if you were just gonna err on the side of safety and what you would recommend to people, I would err on the side of, you know, you probably don't wanna smoke a joint, so to speak. But the flip side is, is you can vape flour. And that's kind of the preferred novice. If you're gonna try something you've never tried before and you wanna try this recreationally or medically for the first time without any other sort of medical advice, that's probably the way I would suggest you do it. To vape flour, so it's two parts. So the vape part of it is it's a heating element. So you're heating it up, you know, you might think of a bong, you might think of a vape, um, like a vaporizer that's almost like a small little, almost like a, like the new cigarette versions, um, but it's heat, right. Like exactly yeah. all of these different kind of ways that you can vape things. So it's the heating element behind it. Okay. Now the flower aspect of it is probably the, the best way you can do anything because it's very hard to overdo flower in and of itself. And it's very hard to have any sort of overdoing it, overdosing, 
which is a non-lethal overdose, but it makes you feel bad when you do too much by accident. Um, and this is just generally the best way you can do it without kind of having any other medical advice on it. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. <clears throat> I definitely am not ready for the shatter and the dab and the no, sound no. really intense. I've already <laughs> learned so much. Yeah. Well, it's funny because uh, I mean, maybe not everybody, but some of us have had experience, you know, smoking a joint and trying things out when we were younger and sometimes when we were older. Um, and to be honest, like it's always been an aversion for me because I, I feel like essentially I feel stupid and I feel like I probably had too much when I've had it. And and I imagine that there's some hesitancy for people when they feel like they've had a bad reaction. So I think it's so important for people to understand that there are different doses, different strengths, different ways to use it. There's the euphoric, psychoactive, you know, as you broke it down so eloquently, uh, there's different ways to use it. So let's talk a little bit more about that, actually, because I think it's important for people to understand they can take it in tincture, they could do it topically. Can you talk about some of the different ways that people could um, could use this? Sure. So that's exactly right. So number one, about 20% of the population doesn't do well with THC. You know, it just doesn't feel good to them. It makes them either feel a little paranoid, it makes them anxious, but about 80% of the population, you know, likes the way it makes them feel. Okay. And I, I want to say that kind of really clearly because people have this expectation that they're going to be, you know, totally stoned in five minutes and, no matter what they use and they won't be able to think clearly and they'll be a different person. It's, it's very mild in general. Like if you think about this as a medication, it's a very mild medication in general. Now, when you dose up on it or when you increase your dosage or your, the number of hits you take or inhalations or what have you, that effect is going to kind of continue to build upon each other, right? So it's a really dose-based medication. That's kind of part one. Part two is, is that reaction. So about 20% don't do well with it or don't feel great with it. About 80% like it, right? Which is generally why you, you have the, the, mass, the mass population enjoys this. For that 20% who doesn't enjoy it, you can see a flip reaction with CBD. So just because you don't like THC doesn't mean that you won't do well with CBD. In fact, I see that people who don't do well with THC do very well with CBD. And it kind of works like a yin and a yang model. So the two really complement one another. And vice versa, people who do really well with THC oftentimes say CBD doesn't do anything for them. So it really depends. And I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If one thing doesn't work well for you, you, there is some flexibility and room for you to try out other things. Um, now talking about tinctures and dosages and whatnot. So in general, CBD and THC have very different dosing strategies. And what I tell people is, is if you were gonna take Tylenol, you wouldn't take the same dose of Tylenol or, or paracetamol, I think you guys use, or acetaminophen. Um, you wouldn't take the same dose of that as you would, for example, oxycodone, right? So you take 325 to 650 milligrams plus of acetaminophen, whereas you take five milligrams of oxycodone. So the milligram dosing doesn't equate with these two different medications. And the same thing is for CBD and THC. For CBD, you're seeing higher dosages because that's what's more standard in it. You know, you're talking about anywhere from 10 to 50 milligram dosing, depending on your size, your weight, your gender. 
Whereas with THC, you can use as much as 0.5 milligrams in an oil tincture, upwards to 10, you know, five to 10 is really more standard. And, but you can use higher dosages of each depending on what we're discussing. So for example, my patients with mild neuropathic pain, I had one of my very first patients had um, severe neuropathic pain of the face and they can see, Dr. Sonia and Dr. Nick can see me pointing to my face here, but, um, and was really bothering him, tried to take Percocet, tried to take muscle relaxants, went to three different specialists, an internist, a family practice, dermatologist, pain management specialist. None of them could help him out with pain and tried about, oh, three to six different prescriptive pain medications as well. Nothing helped. But we started him on a very small dose of THC in an oil tincture version. And small refers to something like anywhere from 0.25 to about one milligram of THC. And started there and gradually built up and was able to not just do well with pain, but virtually have no pain by the end of the time that we were adjusting this dose for him. And that became a easy remedy without getting him high, without making his memory feel fatigued. Something like Dr. Nick, you mentioned without making you feel kind of funny. It really has to do with that dosing regimen. And this was a guy who was roughly 60 something at the time. So, right. And age is going to affect how this um, makes you feel. So this is the other aspect of why, you know, you go see a physician versus dosing medications on your own, because I would never Look say, up for hey, the Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Look out for the Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> But like, you know, hey, you know, you can dose, you know, whatever you want of Norco, Percocet, Oxy, Hydromorphone, Dilaudid. I mean, take your pick of whatever it is. I, I would never say that to you as a physician. But on the other hand, we're expecting patients to walk into a cannabis dispensary on their own and pick out any variety of dose for their problems. And that's where it gets a little bit tricky, right? Um, a child with pediatric epilepsy and seizures is going to get very dosed very differently from a neuropathic pain or um, post-herpetic neuralgia pain of a man in his 60s, you know, versus um, a postpartum mom with depression who's no longer breastfeeding and needs to sleep through the night because she can't get through the night without sleeping. All of these scenarios are so different. And yet when we talk about cannabis and cannabinoids, we don't talk about these differences. We don't talk about like THC is not the same for any of those three individuals. And yet we're using THC for all three of those individuals. Um, we're using CBD for all three of those individuals. And how can we do that better? So really focusing on um, what the diagnosis is, right? Just like when somebody comes into your offices, I imagine you ask what your diagnosis is or where your pain is before we start talking about the treatment plan. So we need to start kind of, we've been working backwards in cannabis for a lot of decades, but we need to start kind of rewiring people to start talking about like, well, what's the problem we're dealing with here and how can we do this better? That's awesome. Yeah. I'm so glad you're bringing that up. And um, I want to kind of talk about the 80% that you had mentioned earlier, how, you know, 20% may get that reaction where they're just um, maybe not wanting to do it again. So they need some education on like different ways that they can use it. And then there's the 80% that do really well. And especially with something like pain, because as you probably know, with all the patients that you work with, when you're in pain, your quality of life has really diminished. And it affects not only your own relationship with yourself, but your relationship with your family and work and all these things. So have you ever seen um, somebody do well with 
treatment and kind of get dependent on the treatment. And I know cannabis's nature is different than some other addictive um, substances and even medication, especially for pain. So can you maybe shed some light on how that it is different and what you do to help support people not become dependent? Because I mean, it's the same thing with, we, we talk about food relationship, we talk about even codependency in, in relationships with our partners or whatever it is, anytime we're dependent on something to take our pain away, even though it may not be an addictive substance, we are, as humans, we can become um, addicted to it because it becomes habitual. It becomes part of our life. And have you ever had to coach somebody to let that go? Or how do you navigate a situation like that? That's an excellent description and an excellent way of presenting it. Thank you so much for that. So with any medication that makes you feel different and any medication in general, quite frankly, we do see some addiction and some dependence. So there's two kind of separate words that we're throwing out there exactly because of what you described, right? Addiction is really like, I need it, I want it, I have to have it. And dependence is, is my body is now dependent on it, whether or not I necessarily want to take it. And so in, in cannabis in general, so I'm gonna separate out the THC and CBD again. So THC, we see about anywhere from nine to 15% addiction rate. And primarily that's those studies have revolved classically around teenagers and 20 year olds who smoke pot. Okay, so teenagers and 20 year olds who are smoking THC. That's really where we're studying those levels of addiction across the board, right? Whether it's with this or nicotine or alcohol or opiates, et cetera. Then you get a separate category for CBD. So CBD, I will tell you right now has 0% addiction rate. It's been studied. There's no addiction that we've seen till now. If you tell me that the addiction rate in 30 years from now is going to be one to 2%, I'll still take it as relatively inconsequential. Okay. And the reason is because it doesn't make you euphoric, correct? So that's the big difference. So we're going to put CBD aside during this conversation, and we're going to focus in on THC. The addiction rate we do see, again, is in our younger population, number one. Number two, that addiction rate, just to put it in comparison and in a, a bigger lens here, alcohol, nicotine goes 18 to 20 something odd percent. Methamphetamines goes up to about 28%, I believe. So every other thing that we know of as addictive is at least twice, if not three times more addictive than this is. Okay, number one. Oh, sorry about that. So number two, what the other part of this is that we're seeing is that THC when given for pain management, for example, and when dosed appropriately, we're not seeing those levels of dependency or addiction that we see with opiates. Um, we can use it and we're using it fairly successfully in the office and in my clinic. We do it where we are reducing patients' opiate usages and reducing their opiate usage to either, you know, anywhere from 50 to 25% of previous down to zero. And it really depends on the individual. So for example, I've had um, 30 year olds up to 70 year olds who want to get off of their prescription opiates. And I'm gonna specify this down to prescription opiates right now. They have been on their opiates for a number of reasons from, you know, post-cancer treatment, chronic pancreatitis, chronic neck and back pain, um, post-polio post syndrome patient. And they've been on these opiates for a very long time. 
and they're trying to get off or at least lower their dosages because we know of the consequences you just mentioned. Um, social consequences, um, personal disappointment and depression. We're now seeing something called opioid-induced hyperalgesia syndrome, which is a fancy term for saying opiates creating pain that only itself can put out, right? So it creates its own self-fulfilling cycle of pain. And then in that kind of syndrome, we also see a reduction in hormones and testosterone levels, um, which plays into everything else we just discussed. And then constipation, right? So now people are on two or three other medications to make them poop in order to kind of feel normal. And even to the point where in the ER and going back to my roots, one of the things I would see frequently was, you know, I haven't pooped in two weeks because I'm on opiates and I can't poop anymore. And that's now, if you've ever had been constipated for any small number of days, two weeks is a long time. And we start seeing other issues kind of result from that. So kind of to refocus, one of the things that we can do, and one of the things I've, I've done very successfully, and it requires a person or a patient who wants to get off of their prescription painkillers, because it's not easy, even with the use of cannabis, it's not easy. But what we can do is allow them to do it at home, allow them to do it at their own pace and allow them to decrease as much or as little as they want. And then at the end, they get to decide and choose whether or not they want to remain on cannabinoids or whether they want to come off of them. And quite frankly, they can do either and they do it very successfully. And the, and the idea at the end of the day is to get patients feeling better. And the problem ends up being is that they're on these huge dosages of opiates and they're still having pain and their lives are still miserable. So what's the point of taking it in the first place? If you're just as miserable as when you started, but now you've taken you know, 20 painkillers in a day and your life is revolving around them, filling them, going to pain, you know, pain clinics once a month, you now can't get these pain medications for months at a time. So you have to go get refills every month. I had one patient who said he would hold all of his medications in a backpack and anytime he left the house, he'd have to wear them around with him for fear someone would break into his house and steal them, then he wouldn't be able to get a refill of the medications wow. again, and you can sell them on the black market. So he was literally carrying a weight on his back every day that served as a reminder, both physically and emotionally of how many pain medications he had to take. And it goes into wow. sleep and sleep disorder. So we see very frequently that, you know, if you're taking a painkiller every six to eight hours, which you know, most people are taking much less frequent or more, more frequently than that. Then you start waking up in the middle of the night to take a painkiller and then your sleep is disrupted. And then again, you know, you see this kind of constant, you know, catch 22, you do one thing to help the other, to help the other, to help the other. And it's a cycle that's very hard to break. Um, so I'm going to give a, a really amazing example. And this is a patient that I, can't wait till he's feel com he feels comfortable to start speaking out about this. He is a young gentleman, roughly 39 years old, who is on fentanyl sublingual. So we used to call them fentanyl pops, but they're just sublingual tablets of fentanyl. They're about 400 micrograms of fentanyl that he would take either one or two doses at a time. And he'd gotten to a point where he was taking them every single hour, roughly during the course of the day. So he was taking 24, 400 microgram fentanyl in a day. And I, I, Dr. Sonia and Dr. Nick here are shaking their heads in amazing shock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, shock, because 
you've never met somebody. I, I can tell you very clearly, I've never met anybody who's taking that amount of painkillers in a day who hasn't been literally on the end of death, right? In hospice care, about to die in you know a couple weeks time, because that's how much medication he was taking. Um, the equivalent was roughly 1800 milligrams of morphine equivalent per day. Okay, so wow. to give people a really clear picture of what that translates into. Um, of course, his bowel movements were off. Of course, he was living his life one hour to the next and, you know, just waiting to take that next painkiller. And pushing, pushing out a medication dose for him was really an hour and a half to two hours to take his next dose. And um, he had a change in his life recently, which was having a baby. And I think that really pushed him personally to move forward and say, I need to stop this. And his pain management doctors couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He had tried doing it on his own with his other docs and was unable to do it. And in the last three months, he is now six days off of 100% of fentanyl. Oh and God. that's... Wow. That is crazy. It's just insane to be off that much painkillers wow. in three months. And, you know, part of it was his drive and his need to get off of it. But it doesn't stop there because no matter how bad you want to stop these medications, they will make you vomit. They'll make you have diarrhea. They will make you sweat until you have to taint your shirt every hour. Um, they will make you have such bad anxiety that you literally feel like your body's about to explode. And what we can do with cannabis, and for him, he didn't like to smoke. He didn't quite frankly like the feel of THC. And so we used a, a modified program to give him oils and sublingual, um, a, a similar sublingual dose of a combined CBD THC medication to get him so that he could just tolerate being off of a portion of these medications at a time. Um, you know, up until recently, I, I basically, would have never expected somebody to be able to tolerate this on any level whatsoever. And the fact that he's done this and done this without any inpatient treatment with, um, I think the only other medication he's been using is some promethazine um, pharmaceutical prescription wise, because we don't use any other prescription pharmaceuticals um, and a little bit of Tylenol to get him through this has been unbelievable. He didn't require any IV fluids, which is again, one of the things, one of the mainstays of being able to treat people as an inpatient hospitalized program to get people off of these opiates. And, you know, you know, we're talking about at least a 20 to $100,000 hospital stay and withdrawal treatment program that he was able to do in, you know, a, a tenth of that, if not one hundredth of that, right? And to be able to do this out of his own home, with his social support network at his at his side, right? And to be able to do that successfully is is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, that part's huge, having that support and that ability to move through the challenges of detoxification. And you know, we at our clinic have helped um, several people through it too. And it's not an easy process. And especially when they're plucked out of their homes and not in an environment that may feel safe and supportive to them. Um, mm -hmm. I think that part's huge for this whole process. Yeah. Well, and when you were speaking to the opiates, because <clears throat> you brought up, like we were talking about addiction and dependency, talked about um, nicotine, alcohol, and some of, the, the, some of these other things. I mean, when I hear you go over this, the, the story and the stats on um, opiates, 
I mean, that's a, that's, that's a extreme dependency that people develop and, you know, not to get kind of like too conspiracy about things, but we know that we are, we're in a, an opiate crisis and typically it is first line of defense, um, especially in the emergency room. So how, if knowing what you know now, if you were able to go back in time uh, and, you know, back to when you were, you were you know, before, I guess, uh, using THC and CBD, the Hawaiian shirt, the Hawaiian shirt. Hawaiian yeah. Shirt. Yeah. Um, what would life have looked like knowing what you know now, um, back in the, some of those settings, like, would you, would you be pushing for the use of these things versus the opiates, or do you still see a role for opiates? And then with a very fast track approach down to uh, CBD THC. That's a great question. So number one, I encourage everyone on both sides of the spectrum of cannabis, because not everyone is for it, that's fine with me, but to just listen, to just listen to what people have to say and to not poo-poo it, because that's what I used to do. I, my very first experience with cannabis in the ER was a 80 something year old woman who told me that her pain management treatment for her severe arthritis was a quarter of a chocolate chip cookie. And I didn't understand it. I, I couldn't understand, it boggled my mind. And it stuck with me because I have a grandmother too, who at the time was also dealing with arthritic pain. And I, of course, wanted to relay back to her something that was working for someone else. And I, I remember asking her very clearly, you know, so what's a chocolate chip? Like what kind of chocolate, what Hershey's chocolate chip are you using? <laughs> I don't understand. And, and being open to the possibilities of other things being helpful. And that's the very first thing I urge everyone to do. The second thing is to, we've, we've entered a realm where, and this is not conspiracy, actually, you mentioned conspiracy. I wanna be very clear. None of this is conspiracy theory. We have great data that backs up everything, okay? So we know that in the 1980s, opioid, opiate pharmaceutical companies pushed upon physicians and pharmacists the use of opiates. We know that for a fact. Purdue Pharma has been sued and has lost millions of dollars, but has profited in the billions, okay, to push Oxycontin. We know that fentanyl um, uh, pops, these fentanyl sublingual tablets have been pushed by pharmaceutical companies and these pharmaceutical representatives have pushed these upon physicians and the likes and have profited again by the billions off of every, every single individual person who's taken these medications. So there's no conspiracy about that. It's very clear and very proven to the point where, you know, at one point we were taught in medicine that the fifth vital sign is pain. And I think there was an important factor to that to be addressed, which was that maybe we weren't addressing people's pain at the time, but now we over address it because we have things, um, scores that called press gamey scores, for example, that reflect upon how we as physicians do. And it's like a Yelp review that patients get to do. And it has some benefit, but it also has a lot of inherent problems in it. And one of the biggest inherent problems is gender, race, etc. that we know that people, you know, are more likely to rate people better for certain genders and races. But the other inherent problem is, is opiates. And we think that patients give us better recommendations and Yelp scores or Press Gainey scores if we prescribe them what they want. 
even though we inherently know that what they want is not good for them. So, you know, taking a step back and again, going back to that pre-Hawaiian shirt day and what I would do, because I still work in the emergency department and I still, I utilize this kind of new information or newer information to our benefit. And I ask patients, you know, I, I have that, you have to have that deeper level conversation and actually tell them, you know, I can prescribe you Vicodin, but quite frankly, it will do no better or worse for your pain than Motrin and Tylenol extra strength. And let's take that one step further. If I prescribe you Vicodin, I'm happy to do it because I think you'll benefit from it for today and tomorrow. But how about after that, trying to go down a different track? And by the way, you will get constipated with even one dose of Vicodin. So I'm going to prescribe you a stool softener for that so that you don't go through that kind of lesson on your own, because we know these lessons already. How do you feel with that? And you know what? People tend to be very understanding and very appreciative of having that conversation. You don't have to prescribe cannabis. You don't have to recommend cannabis. You just have to give people the option and the right and information to choose what their options are. You know, you can tell them, hey, you know, you twisted your ankle and that's going to be painful. The best thing you can do is stay off your ankle for a couple of days. The next best thing you can do is actually do physical therapy and ice it and elevate it and get it moving again. Because once it gets stiff, then we're kind of, we're going, we're going backwards in time in terms of pain management but you're gonna do better if I give you less opiates. It's your choice at the end of the day. And I think giving people that choice actually gives them a lot more happiness in terms of what they get to choose, whether it's opiates or non-opiates. And you know what? Most of the time it's gonna be non-opiates if you educate them correctly. And that's all you need to do is just educate people correctly. And it can be, at the end of the day, it's their, it's their option. And if we give them the option, you know, they're more likely to fare better. Um, I listened to a lecture once recently about uh, nutritional content of food and how there was a great research study that showed that you can write, you know, this meal is a thousand calories, which is a lot if anybody knows what calories are for a given meal. Or you can put a label on there that shows a picture of a fat person. And you know what? They're going to respond better to that picture of a fat person than they will with the thousand calorie label on there. Because to the, to the normal everyday person who doesn't necessarily pay attention to calories, that picture of a fat person is going to make more sense to them than how many calories is in this. And it's the same thing with this. If you tell them that, you know, you may need opiates for a lot longer than you expect, or you, it might constipate you and it might cause more problems down the line, maybe just use it for a day or two because it's important for broken bones. I think it has a place and a value there. It's important for a lot of, you know, I always tell people they're one kidney stone away from getting an opiate prescription because it's, it's horrifically painful and you want that opiate prescription in those situations. And I want to give you that opiate prescription in that situation. But what I don't want is for you to think that this is candy or this is easy to come off of, or you can take this consistently and continuously for two weeks and come off of it very easily. You can't. And it doesn't matter who you are or that you've never had opiates before in your life. You, you just need to be mindful of it. 
It's awesome. Yeah, I love that. I think it's so empowering for the patient too, and for the patient to take that self-responsibility in their own healing. Because I think a lot of times there's this expectation that the doctor will save the day and that we are not responsible for the choices that we're making also. So I think by educating, you're empowering and putting it back in their hands, but also guiding them at the same time so that they can make choices that will serve them, not just in that moment, but going forward. So thank mm -hmm. you. We need more ER doctors like you for sure. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I love that you led with education. I mean, I think that that's something that's so easy to do technically, but we don't always make time for it. And I mean, we, we do because we're in a setting where that's allowed, but for someone in, in your position to, to make an effort to do that, I mean, what if that became more of every ER doctor's dialogue to really connect and educate the patient? I mean, it's such I mean, I'm sure that people are listening are like, how do I find Dr. Sherry? This, is, <laughs> If I get hurt, I want to make sure I go see her. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, we, we want to share um, your resources for people to access. Well, before I have a question. Okay. I know Carry we on. have a few minutes here. We want to um, honor your time, but I have a question for you. Um, so in talking about like dependency and addiction and just talking about human nature and how the choices that we make can either lead to suffering um, and keep us stuck in our pain, or they can lead, you know, a life of empowerment and growth and learning. If you had one wish for those that you love or your patients of them understanding their body's ability to heal, what would that wish be? Don't be afraid. Don't be I think fear holds us back a lot. I know it held me back for a lot of years about cannabis in general, but you know, once you let go of that fear, um, you know, the sky's the limit. You can really change quite a bit and, and change for the better and not be so stuck. Um, you know, <laughs> even with these upcoming elections, I think a lot of, there's a lot of fear, right? There's, you know, 2020 to me has been a year of fear and and I want people to start looking forward and and making choices not based on fear making choices based on hope or where you want to be and making choices based off of where you envision things going um you know and and relating it back to cannabis one more time I think for so long we've been afraid of getting stoned or getting high that we don't allow for the benefits, right? And we don't allow for the other options in it. And it doesn't have to be that way. Cannabis can be literally whatever you want it to be. And you're in the, you're in the pilot seat here and you get to choose. And so if you wanna not smoke it, you don't have to smoke it. If you want to um, not get high, you don't have to get high. If you want to just use it for very specific neck ache and neck pain, and you don't want to use it anywhere else, you can use a topical that you can just rub onto your shoulder. And there is so little lost by using it one time or giving it a try or even considering it or not even considering it, but at least not being closed-minded to allow other people to use it. Because I think that's the other step in all this is saying, you know, yeah, I don't care. It may not be for you. That's fine but maybe it may be beneficial for somebody, you know, and maybe that's where, you know, that fear may be limiting. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's beautiful. And maybe even to add to that is something that you said before is that, you know, you, maybe you're talking to the Hawaiian shirt guy and you haven't actually got 
proper advice on proper dosage, the concentration. And so you haven't actually given it the proper chance that it, that it deserves because again, just kind of goes back to education, which, um, which we want to share with people because they're going to have a lot more questions on, you know, what are some applications? Because I know on your documentary, you talk about cancer and autism and seizures and not that these are like the be all and end all treatment that cures everything, but there's a time and place and a role to use these therapies. Um, and so what are some of those uh, tools that people can access to find out more information? Where can they listen to more of your work? And, you know, we can mention the, uh, the documentary again, uh, Cannabis and Your Doctor, but please, please share some of these other resources. Yes, please. Thank you. So you can, the very first step I would say, I know you guys are based in Canada, um, but in Canada, we have a wonderful group of physicians as well. And a lot of us have kind of joined hands across the world and one of the ways we've all joined hands for educational purposes, as well as to provide for our patients is through the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. And you can go to cannabisclinicians.org and you can look up a local physician in the Find Your Practitioner site. You can donate. It's a nonprofit organization focused on medical education. You can um, look up and see if there is research studies done on your particular ailment or diagnosis. And so there's a library that is full of scientific research, all based on different cannabinoids and how they can be helpful in your situation. So that's a great resource for everyone across the globe. Um, another way you can reach out to me directly, you can email me at sherry, S-H-E-R-R-Y at M-D, relief, relief spelled like a leaf on a tree, R-E-L-E-A-F.com. Or you can go to my website, www.thereliefinstitute.com or sherryifymd.com. I think that's the last one I got. <laughs> we'll add everything to the show notes yeah. so they all get the- And they can follow resources. you on Instagram too, I believe, right? Oh, yeah, I, I am new yeah. to the world of Instagram. Can't forget the social media. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm, I'm like a baby in the world of Instagram. I've, I've been on it, I think for just three, four months now. So mid quarantine, awesome. we've started that. Uh, it's a whole other world. Yeah, <laughs> we, we have a younger employee now that's teaching us all the ways. Yeah, you need a young mentor in your life yeah exactly i don't think any of us are particularly old but yes we all need younger mentors going we do yeah yeah well thank you so much this was a really enlightening conversation and i know people are going to gain a lot of knowledge um from this so thank you for taking the time to talk to us thank you thank Thank you you for having me we hope you enjoyed this episode of the health ignited podcast Be sure to download, subscribe, and share as we build this conscious community together. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, drsjensen.com. Please note all information on this podcast is not and should not be taken as medical advice. Please see a healthcare professional to receive the care needed. Thank you for sharing this time with us, igniting your health freedom. And welcome to the tribe.